We don't have a sponsor for this week's Parsha podcast. And if you'd like to sponsor a future episode, please email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Check out our website, torchweb.org. And thank you for listening. Parsha Svazchanan has 118 verses, 12 mitzvos, and it's a continuation of the style of last week's Parsha, Parshas Devarim. Moses is giving his end-of-life monologue. It begins with a continuation of the retrospective of last week's Parsha, and then it pivots towards looking forward towards the conquest of Canaan after Moses is no longer there to guide them. And Moshe is preparing the nation for that world and its perils. And the Parsha has a lot of big ideas, a lot of iconic verses. For example, we have the Shema and the mitzvah of studying Torah and loving God and donning tefillin, the phylacteries, uh, affixing a mezuzah on your doorpost. We have the repetition of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments, a very vivid retelling of the story, the idea of chosen people, what's the uniqueness of the Jewish claim of divinity, how do we know that the Torah is indeed from God, how do we know that the Sinai experience is on rivaled by any other national revelation, what's the consequences of our action, countless warnings against idolatry. And like we said last week, the Parsha has an intricate, maybe terse style as it moves from one idea to another, and it's a little bit hard to follow the continuation of the verses. We're going to try as best as we can to understand how the narrative stitches together. And the Parsha begins by Moshe speaking at a very personal level about the request that he made from God that was ultimately rejected. I implored Hashem at that time saying, My Lord, Hashem, Elohim, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what power is there in the heaven or on the earth that can perform according to your deeds and according to your mighty acts? Let me now cross and see the good land that is on the other side of the Jordan, this good mountain and the Lebanon. Moses is making a request from God to be allowed to enter, to cross over the Jordan, and to see the land, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. And ultimately, God says, no, don't ask again. It's too late for that. The decree is immutable. You're not going to cross. Now, the Midrash tells us something very interesting. The Midrash tells us that Moses made this request 515 times. 515 times Moses made this prayer, this request, to be allowed to enter into the land. And God said, that's it. Stop praying. Don't pray even one more time. Because if you do pray one more time, I'm going to have to accede to your request. But I don't want to. And if I do that, I'm going to have to rework all of creation. This is a very powerful idea over here. That prayer is always efficacious. But it's not always achieving the goal in the first prayer. It could be cumulative. So Moses, according to the Midrash here... He needed 516 prayers to unlock entering the land. He got up to the finish point, up to 515, and God said, okay, no more, because if you pray one more time, the power of prayer is such that I'm going to have to accede to the request, but I cannot, and therefore you have to stop praying right now, not add another prayer. And on a simple level, his request is simply to enter the land. And I you know, always say that when we teach the parsha we try to go through the parsha in an hour. We have to sometimes subsist with with just the simplistic understanding. But on a deeper, maybe kabbalistic level, there is in fact a book called the Megala Amukos. It's written by Rabbi Nassim Nata Shapiro, and one of his books. He was a rabbi of Krakow in the early 17th century. One of his books is literally on this sentence: uh, Moses requesting from God to enter, and he writes based upon uh, Kabbalah based upon Jewish mysticism, 252 different ways to understand this request, 252 different angles of the request of Moses, what exactly he wanted. And of course, for us, we're going to have to try to understand on a simple level what exactly is Moses, Moses requesting, but it's always important to keep in the back of our head the fact that there is much more advanced strata of understanding, and there's maybe infinite understanding, and we're trying to scratch the surface, we're trying to understand as best as we can in the time that we have. So Rashi tells us over here that Moses, he prefaces his request that I implored, that I asked God at that time. There was a specific time that Moses thought was fortuitous for him to make this request. Rashi tells us that that's at the time of the conquest of Sihon and Og, 
These are the Transjordan portions of the land, the portions that are going to be allotted to the tribes of Ruvain and Gad and half of the Shevet and half of the tribe of Menashe. And Moses thought that because he was able to conquer that part that's going to be annexed to the greater land of Israel, well, maybe that is evidence that the decree that he's not going to enter the land is annulled. And therefore, he says, oh, okay, okay, maybe I can actually cross over the Jordan and enter the land of Canaan proper. And in addition, Rashi tells us that the word that Moses is using, va'et chanan, that I'm, I'm beseeching, that I'm imploring God, is the same root as the word chinan, which means free. And Rashi tells us a very powerful idea, that when the righteous make a request from God, there's two ways you could go about doing that. You could either say, I want to invoke my my mitzvos, my characteristics, my good deeds, and use that as payment, so to speak, for the request. However, says Rashi, the righteous, they don't do that. When they make a request from God, they do not use their good deeds, their mitzvos, as a way to lobby God as a payment, so to speak, for the request. Rather, they ask for a freebie. They're never willing to accept reward for their mitzvos in this world. And in fact, this theme... It appears over here at the beginning of the parsha, and we're going to see it at the very end of the parsha. It's a bookend of the themes of the parsha. Is the idea that reward for mitzvos is for the next world, for the afterlife, for olam haba. Even though it's possible for us to maybe ask God to cash them in over here, the righteous opt not to. By definition, someone who's righteous is someone who realizes that any request that you could unlock in this world is dwarfed by the most minuscule, the most minor reward in Omaba in the afterlife, in the next world, and therefore it doesn't make sense to cash out on the cheap, to cash out in this world. When they pray, they ask for freebies. Now the Ramban, on a more broader level, he tells us that this is a continuation of Moses' admonishment to the people. The whole partial last week, we, we saw that Moses is giving these hints that he's rebuking, he's castigating, but in a very gentle way, the Jewish nation for their behavior in the past. And this is a continuation that he desired, Moses' desired to enter the land so intensely, yet because of the people, he was not able to enter. But what's the nature of his request? He tells God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. There's no power like you who could do these amazing things. What exactly does that mean? So this is a theme that we've seen before. And that is that God, by the Jewish definition, is infinite. Yet the world is finite. And therefore, the the touch point, the interface, there has to be some degree of God giving the world dimensions. God himself is infinite. But the world is finite, and God created that finiteness, and therefore those limitations, those rigid boundaries of this world are decided by God. But they're not fixed, because God, after all, is infinite, and therefore if you wanted to enlarge, if you wanted to expand, if you wanted to augment the amount of finiteness that exists in the world, then he could do that. And this is a theme that we saw in in the end of Exodus, where God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people because of the sin of the golden calf. And yet God says, he leaves the door open. He says, well, it's possible for you to pray and to change that. And the obvious question that we've talked about in the past is that, wait a minute, if God says he's going to destroy the, the nation as a result of the sin, then obviously the sin warrants the nation be destroyed. Yet he's leaving the door open for Moses to pray and to change that. And the very deep idea that we see over here, and that's revisited here in in Deuteronomy, and it's also revisited actually in the book of Numbers with the sin of the spies, is that via prayer, we can change the amount of finiteness that God apportions to the world. Yes, the Jewish people sin with the golden calf, and yes, in in, in the bounds in the constraints of the world at that time, their behavior is so unacceptable that it warrants that they get destroyed. However, those constraints, those bounds, that finiteness, that could be changed. We could ask God, so to speak, to enlarge the amount of kindness, to enlarge the amount of mercy, to enlarge the amount of forgiveness that he accords the world, because after all, he's infinite, and he only gave the world a finite amount of forgiveness, and the Jewish people behaved outside of the bounds of what is acceptable, in the, in the construction, in the layout of how much forgiveness, but that can be changed. And therefore Moses prays to enlarge God's kindness, to enlarge God's goodness, and now 
in the new reality of the world, in the new amount of finiteness that God has enlarged, so to speak, when given over to the world, the Jewish people's behavior does fall within, so to speak, acceptable behavior. And that was repeated by the sin of the spies. And now Moses is trying to invoke that as well. What Moses is telling God, is lobbying God, is praying, well, yes, my behavior was such that it warranted a decree that I'm not going to enter the land. However, you showed me the way. You have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. There's no power in heaven and the earth like, like you. You are infinite. And therefore, it's possible for you to change the rules in which you govern the world to enlarge, to expand the amount of forgiveness, so to speak, the amount of goodness that you accord to the world. And even though by the previous rules of existence, my behavior was such that I was not allowed to enter the land, but maybe now you'll change that and I would be able to enter the land, which of course is a very powerful idea that with prayer, we can actually change alter, amend the, the rules that God used to create the world. Almost as if that the amount of vitality, so to speak, that God gives the world is dynamic. It's not fixed. Almost as if every second creation is ongoing. And with prayer, we can manipulate that. We can change that. We can expand or, God forbid, contract the amount of goodness that God affords the world. And that was the angle of Moses' prayer. Again, this is a simple level that Rashi tells us. That's the angle of Moses' prayer. Enlarge the way that you treat the world. Give the world more kindness, more goodness. And via these new rules... I'll be allowed to enter. Now, there's a beautiful Midrash here that Midrash compares Moses to this, the spies, the scouts that, that Moses sent to scout the land. And he compares it to a king who wanted to marry a, a woman, and she was in a different part of the world, and he sent messengers to go inspect how beautiful she was. So the, the messengers go, and they come back to the king, and they say, you know what? We saw her. She is so ugly. She is so distasteful that there's no one as ugly as her in the world. And then one of the king's advisors says, no, it's not true. There's no one as beautiful as her in the world. And eventually the king goes to marry her, and the father of the bride, the father of the the soon-to-be queen, he tells the messengers of the king, well, it's not possible that you who embarrassed the daughter, you embarrassed her to the king, it's not fair that you should participate in the wedding. However, the advisor who did laud the praises of this woman to the king, he says, well, why do I suffer? They spoke negatively about her, and therefore they don't get to participate. I, however, who did speak about her beauty, I should be allowed to participate. Similarly, Moses tells God, the spies who were sent to scout the land, they said the land was really terrible. I said the land was really fantastic. Let me go in and let me see who is right. And God responded, no. Uh, verse 26, but Hashem became angry with me because of you, and he did not listen to me. Hashem said to me, it's too much for you. Do not continue to speak to me further about this matter. You could go see the land. You can look in all directions, but you shall not cross this Jordan, however, command Joshua, strengthen him, give him resolve. He will cross the people. He will cause them to inherit the land. You're going to see it. He is going to oversee the conquest of the land. So Moses tells the people here that because of the Jewish people, God did not accede to Moses' request. What does that mean, that because of the Jewish people, God did not accede to Moses' request? So there's a few interpretations of what exactly this means. The Sepharnas has a very powerful idea, and this is something that we've seen last week and previous weeks as well. Had Moses been at the helm when the Jewish people conquered the land, they would never be allowed to be kicked out of that land. Whatever Moses did was granted permanence. Moses, if he oversaw the conquest, the conquest would have been permanent, and then therefore God would not have been able to kick them out. And because God knew that the future would warrant that the Jewish people would be exiled from their land, therefore, because of the Jewish people and because of their future behavior, Moses was not allowed to conquer the land. The historian gives a different idea, a very powerful idea. He says that the reason why Moses was not allowed to enter because of the Jewish people, what's going to be? You have Moses as the leader of the people. He is the captain of the ship. And if the whole nation, the whole nation, the whole generation of people who were not allowed to enter the land, they all die. They all are all buried in the other side of the Jordan. And Moses prays for himself. And he's allowed to go in. 
What are people going to say? Moses only cares about himself. He only prays for himself. He doesn't pray for them. They're lost forever. They're buried there forever. They're gone from the Jewish people for eternity, the whole generation. And Moses, he's selfish. He cares for himself. He saves himself, but he ignores his flock. And therefore, it's inappropriate for a captain to abandon the sinking ship, and therefore the ship is sinking, Moses has to, so to speak, sink with them. And that, of course, provides comfort when the people know that Moses is buried here with us, and therefore when we know that Moses, of course, has a, has a place in eternity, and he's going to bring the rest of the Jewish people along with him. However, Joshua will not suffer that same fate. Moreover, Rashi tells us that not only will Joshua join the Jewish people in the conquest of the land, but only if Joshua is at their helm, only then will the conquest happen. But if not, if he's not there, then the conquest will not happen. So that's the end of chapter 3. And chapter 4 begins the idea of Moses looking forward. He's telling them, you will enter the land, you will flourish in the land, provided that you act properly. Now, O Israel, listen to the decrees and to the ordinances that I teach you to perform so that you may live and you will come and possess the land that Hashem, the God of your forefathers, gives you. You're going to have the conquest on condition, provided that you listen, you obey, you adhere to the decrees, to the ordinances, to the Torah that I command you. So, of course, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, Moses tells the Jewish people so that you may live. So simply Simply understood, it means that you're going you're gonna to live, your forebearers die because of sin, don't do the same, you will live as a result of not sinning and not creating your cause for you to die. Alternatively, one of maybe the, the themes of, of Deuteronomy we find over here in Rabbeinu Bachia, one of the commentators, he says like this, what does it mean, do the mitzvahs, listen, hearken to the decrees, to the ordinances, so that you may live? It's not referring to physical life, this is referring to spiritual life. The mitzvot, the commandments, they are the food for the soul, just like the body needs nourishment to continue existing, so to the soul needs that, and that is the mitzvot. There is a Ramban in Leviticus, in chapter 18, he tells us a very powerful idea that four times in the Torah, it tells us that we do mitzvot and we get life as a result, and that's because there's four different kinds of of mitzvot that we could do, and there's four different degrees of life that are unlocked via these four different types of mitzvot. Very powerful idea. And then Moses continues, don't add to the mitzvot and do not subtract from those mitzvot. You may think that you're smarter than God. I'm going to add more. I'm going to subtract. I'm going to amend. I'm going to add my own commentary. No, you're not allowed to do that. You have to realize that this is divine, that mitzvot are from God, and he knows exactly what to do, how much, no more, no less. Rashi tells us that this means that, you know, we have the tzitzis, it's, it's a four-corner garment, don't make a five-corner garment. We have the four species of the lulav, don't make five, don't add, subtract days of the festivals. Now, the Ramban here asks an interesting question. He asks, well, aren't there rabbinic edicts which seems to add to the Torah? And he answers that, yes, number one, the rabbinic edicts, they themselves are a mitzvah, but also it's important to clearly label a mitzvah as rabbinic, meaning it is an edict, it is a decree to make sure that someone does not transgress a Torah edict commandment. So that's the general idea of mitzvos. And then, after warning about the generalities of the mitzvos, the Ramon tells us that verse 3 here in chapter 4 is to talk about the specifics. And of course, when we talk about specifics, the first thing that it talks about is idolatry, says the Ramban. Why does it talk about idolatry when it talks about the specifics of mitzvos? Because idolatry is the root of all sin. Idolatry, of course, is rejection of God, it's repudiation of God. And with every sin, someone says, God said no, I say yes. Every sin smacks with the stench of idolatry. And therefore, when it talks about specifics of mitzvos, it starts with idolatry. Your eyes have seen what Hashem did to Balpur, to the idolatry. Every man who followed it, God destroyed him from your midst. But you, who cling to Hashem, your God, you are all alive today. You saw the people who did idolatry, they died, but the people who are alive are the ones who clung to God. As an aside, the Talmud tells us, where do we know the concept of the afterlife in the scripture, one of the sources is this verse, that we cling to Hashem, our God, we have life forever. Just like whenever we say the word today, it means forever, because anytime you read it, it's today, and thus the people who cling to God, they have life 
forever. Even though, even though they've passed, someone who is righteous, someone who's clung to God, they have a connection, they have a bind with the Almighty, and that gives them life forever. There's also a very powerful Midrash that tells us, uh, like an analogy, and we've spoken about this a few weeks ago as well, where you have someone who's uh, drowning in the raging seas and the captain throws him a lifeline and via the lifeline, the person is brought close to the captain and to the safety of the ship deck. Similarly, the Jewish people, or really humanity, were thrown into the raging waters of this world. We have the evil inclination, we have the, all the temptations, we have the uh, opacity of, of what we're supposed to do, and God throws us the lifeline, the lifeline is the mitzvos. We grab onto the lifeline and we are given life. The verse says the Midrash, when this verse we read over here, we cling to Hashem, our God, we are alive. Otherwise, if we abandon it, if we abandon the lifeline of mitzvos, then we are dead. And then it goes to talk more about, you know, the Jewish nation, what we stand for. And it tells us, for example, here, verse 5, see, I've taught you the decrees and the ordinances, you should safeguard them, perform them, for it is your wisdom and your discernment in the eyes of the peoples who shall hear all these decrees and who shall say, surely a wise and discerning people is this great nation. Very powerful idea here. And again, this is rapid fire, one idea to the next, and it's, 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 um, we have to go through very quickly if we want to cover it all uh, within the time allotted. But here, the verse tells us that the reason why the Jewish people are appreciated, it's not for their accomplishments outside of Torah. It's only because of our accomplishments in Torah. And people wonder, you know, we have the Jewish people, 22% of all Nobel Prize winners, innovators, technologists, titans of industry, yet no group suffers more hate crime in America than the Jews. And of course, Israel face, faces a horrific double standard. And the Jews in Europe are suffering mightily. Why? Maybe this is the answer. That the Jewish people, it's only, again, I'll read it to you again, safeguard and perform them, for it is your wisdom and your discernment in the eyes of the people. Again, Rashi tells you, Rashi tells us, in this we are considered wise in the eyes of others. Only via Torah will the nations respect us. And then we read uh, further. What will they say? They'll say, this is a wise and certain people. This is a great nation. For which is a great nation that, that has a God who is close to it, as, as is Hashem our God, whenever we call out to him. And again, this is a continuation. When we observe the mitzvos, the Torah, the mitzvos that we do, assures that our prayers will be answers. We'll be close to God when we cry out to him, provided that we are behaving the proper way, the nations admire us, we are obeying, we are hearkening to the mitzvahs. And this is one of the themes, the, the, the duality that we see over here, not just in scripture, but throughout Jewish history. This idea that we're the closest to God. And you look at our history, and our history is littered with all kinds of events that you may say, well, this does not look like a nation that has God on their side, that has God in their corner. What's the answer? This is the answer. God is close to us, and God's the most close to us, provided that we behave in a way that is outlined here in the Torah. However, specifically this closeness, this idea of being chosen, of being God's people, that also contributes that on the flip side, when we abandon God, then we suffer almost as if God turns away from us and therefore we're on our own and we have the ire of the nations. They don't look favorably towards us because again, the only reason why they would is because of Torah and then we suffer tremendously much more than everyone else. But we have a Torah and we have a nation, like the verse says, which is a great nation that has the righteous decrees and ordinances such as the entire Torah that are placed before you today. We have laws that are just, we don't have lobbying that creates the laws. There's no corruption. It's, it's from God. And when you read the laws and you study them properly, it becomes an eye-opening experience, the fact that we are given a system of laws that is so righteous and so just. And then in verse 9, it talks about the prohibition of forgetting sign. Only beware for yourself and greatly beware for your soul, lest you forget the things which your eyes have beheld, lest you remove them from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children, to your children's children. What should we remember? The day that you stood before Hashem your God at Chorev, at Sinai, when Hashem said to me, gather the people, and I'm going to speak to the people. This is a very powerful thing. We're going to start talking about the Ten Commandments and the events that leading up to it and following it. And we see it's a mitzvah, in fact, a prohibition for us to not forget Sinai. And the Rabban has an essay here about the importance of remembering Sinai, because 
this is what our nation depends upon. This is the founding event of our nation, and this is what we look back on to understand what we're really doing. And if we had Torah, let's say from Moses, Moses is a, is a great man, a great prophet. But if it came from Moses, even if it, could be, if it could be proven via miracles and prophecy and the like, but if it came from Moses, not from God, well, then it's up to someone else who's also a prophet, who's also a soothsayer, who's also maybe a necromancer, who's also a sorcerer, and they could say the opposite. And then it becomes fickle. It's, is it the product of, of man or is it the product of God? If it's from Moses, it's the product of man. Whereas what happens when we have a Torah that comes to us from the, from the Almighty himself and we saw it at Sinai and we heard it with our own ears, with our own eyes, without any intermediary. Well, then we are armed with the ammunition to reject to repel any naysayer, we know for sure, we have evidence that they are lying and therefore the Torah becomes immutable and the Torah remains forever. And of course, even before Sinai, the Ramban tells us that the Jewish people are going to to believe in Moses and the Moses message because of Sinai, because they're going to retell it to their children and this story is going to be perpetuated. And this is one of the themes of this chapter, chapter 4, the idea that the Sinai experience is unparalleled by any other experience. This is the founding event of our nation and it's a story that is not found anywhere else. The idea of national relation, the idea of God himself appearing to a nation, speaking to them directly. They hear it, they see it, they experience it, and they survive to tell the tale and to transmit that to their children. I always tell people it's important to read the book and not to watch the movie because uh, the Ten Commandments, that movie that came out in the 1950s, it seems like Moses, he himself experiences signing the Ten Commandments and he conveys that to the nation. And if you read just, again, the, the verses without any, you don't need any fancy commentaries and like that, it's clear that the whole nation experienced Sinai. It wasn't just Moses. God spoke to the whole nation from amidst the fire. Hashem spoke to you from amidst the fire. Again, just reading the verses. You were hearing the sounds of the words. You were not seeing any likeness. Don't take a message that this was any sort of physical representation. Don't take the message of Sinai and translate it into idolatry. He told you his covenant that he commanded you to observe the 10 declarations, the 10 commandments. He inst- and he inscribed them on two stone tablets. And then it continues by saying, don't do idolatry as a result, but you should greatly be aware for your soul, for you did not see any likeness on the day that Hashem spoke to you at Chorah from amidst the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourself a carved image, a likeness of any shape, a male, a female, an animal, a winged bird that flies in the heaven. There's all kinds of mistakes that could result from the Sinai experience, and therefore the Sinai experience, when it's being retold, has to be accompanied by warning not to take away the wrong lesson. Unless you raise your eyes unto the heaven and you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the entire legion of the heaven, and you should be drawn astray and bow to them and worship them, which Hashem your God has apportioned to to all the people under the heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean that Hashem created these stars, these constellations to apportion them to all the people under the heaven? So Rashi tells us that it means to give them light. Alternatively, to give them a way to go astray. God apportioned these constellations in a way that he knew that they will potentially lead to people going astray, to people worshiping them. And that is just the, the rules, that there's there's the idea of free will, and God creates the possibility for people to make these kinds of blunders. Interestingly, the Talmud tells us that when the 70 sages were commissioned by Ptolemy to translate the Torah to create the Septuagint, they made several changes. One of the changes is they added a word in this verse, verse 19 of chapter 4. Instead of saying God has apportioned these constellations for the nations, God has apportioned them to illuminate for the nations. Otherwise, it'll be erroneously understood that the Gentiles can do idolatry. No, it was given to them to give them illumination. And then it continues, but Hashem has taken you and withdrawn you from the iron crucible from Egypt to be a nation of heritage for him as this very day. Interestingly, Rashi tells us that uh, the, the Egyptian exile, the Egyptian experience is compared to an iron crucible. What does that mean? That is a tool for purifying gold. And more broadly speaking, what this tells us is that when the Jewish people entered Egypt, they were gold, but they were unrefined gold. It was unpurified. And therefore, they needed to be purified to become the the nation that God had envisioned and God had told uh, Abraham about, the nation that's going to continue 
Abraham's legacy and ultimately complete his mission. And this, of course, is a broader idea, but we're told over here that the Egyptian exile, the Egyptian experience, 210 years of being slaves to Pharaoh, was constructive. And maybe the idea is because that created us into the best kind of slaves. We became total slaves first first to Pharaoh, and therefore the exodus is not changing our status. It's not making slaves not slaves. Instead, it's taking slaves of Pharaoh and converting them into slaves of God. We're transferring the allegiances that we previously had to Pharaoh. We're transferring that to God, and that is the nation. That's the purified gold. Abraham, of course, is a slave of God. But the nation that he would have spawned would have not been complete slaves of God. And therefore, it mandated that he had to go through this iron crucible. The gold had to be purified. We had to become better slaves, more complete slaves, first to Pharaoh. And then that's transferred to being slaves, being servants, being subject, being subservient to God in a total way. And then we could have Torah. We could have a sign experience right afterwards. And Moses continues by revisiting the decree against himself, against Moses, entering the land. Hashem became angry with me because of your deeds, and he swore that it will not cross the Jordan, and it will not come to the good land that Hashem, your God, gives me as a heritage. And the Rabban tells us is that the reason why Moses is invoking that again, it's because Moses is giving them uh, admonishment. He's critiquing them. And he's telling them, again, it's important for you to hear it now, because very soon I'm going to die. I'm not going to cross over into the land. And now is the only chance for me to tell you not to forget the Sinai experience. The commentaries add that this was maybe a second decree. Moses not only was not allowed to enter alive into the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, but there was a second decree that he was not allowed to have his bones enter. We know Joseph's bones, of course, were buried in the land, and the bones of Joseph's brother, as the rest of the tribes, were also buried in the land, yet Moses, he himself was buried outside of the land. So that's like a double punishment, and therefore that's maybe what's being invoked over here, the fact that Moses is again repeating the fact that he is not only not allowed to enter, but not allowed to come in any way into the land. And again, the warnings are continuing. Beware for yourself. Don't forget the covenant that God made with you. Don't make a carved image. Don't make any likeness. Don't take the message of Sinai incorrectly. Don't follow the ways of idolatry. And then Moses expands the 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 context of the discussion. He's talking not just about the ent- entering the land, but when they're going to leave the land, forcibly be kicked out of the land and sent into exile. When you beget children and grandchildren, and you've been long in the land, you'll become corrupt, and you'll make a carved image. You'll, you'll, you'll descend into idolatry. I appoint heaven and earth this day to bear witness against you. You will surely perish from upon the land, you're, that the land that you're crossing now. You're going to be destroyed, and God will scatter you amongst the people. You'll be small in number. There you'll serve gods of, of, the, of, of your new masters, the handiwork of man of wood and stone. Which do, which do not see, do not hear, do not eat, and do not smell. Moses is going to make a prediction for the future. You're entering the land now, and I'm warning you against idolatry, but if you do come, and it's probably going to happen, you're going to descend to idolatry, and then you're going to be banished from the land. Now, there's a very fascinating Rashi here, according from the Talmud, that it says that Moses is telling them the exact length of the first commonwealth. The word vinoshantem, which means you'll be long in the land, the numerical value is... 852. And that is almost identical to the length of years the Jewish people were in the land before they were booted by the Babylonians. Why? 480 years after the Exodus, i.e. 440 years after they entered the land, the first temple was built, and the first temple was destroyed after 410 years, and thus 440 plus 410 is 850. And what it's telling us here, Rashi tells us, again, quoted from the Talmud, that really they were supposed to live in the land for 852 years before they were kicked out, but they were kicked out two years early. Why? Because if you read the continuation, what would have happened if they stayed the full 282 and then they were kicked out? Then they would surely perish from upon the land. This is verse 26. They will surely perish quickly from the land. They'll be totally destroyed. And thus, as a way to prevent the continuation of the verse from this, this terrible curse, from being a fits to the nation, God took them out two years early, 250 years, and thus they're able to skirt this punishment, this curse of being totally destroyed from upon the land. There's a very interesting Ramban here 
who asks the obvious question. He says, I, I don't get it. This idea that's in the, the, it's in the Talmud, 200, 852 years, that's part of the oral Torah corpus. So why didn't the people know this ahead of time that there's going to be 852 years before they're going to be kicked out? And the answer, he says, very, very interesting idea, that they knew, i.e. The, the, the oral Torah tradition was, that there was a hint in this paragraph for the duration of the commonwealth. They didn't know exactly what the hint was. And after they were sent out, after 850 years, then they tried to calculate, try to find where it was, and they dwelled upon it, they ruminated upon this idea, and they found the connection in the word Vinoshantem, 852, but they went two years early, and that's indeed a blessing in disguise. And again, there's a lot of predictions here in rapid fire. The idea that exile will happen as a result from idolatry, we're going to be scattered, we're going to be this perpetual minority in all these various lands that we're in. The Ramban adds that even if we are numerous, in each particular land, we're going to be the minority, we're going to do uh, idolatry, but then we're going to do repentance. So that's verse 29 and verse 30. From there, you will seek Hashem your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have befallen you at the end of days, you will return to Hashem your God and hearken to his voice. It's a very deep idea over here. We see two verses, verse 29, verse 30, that both talk about repentance. But the first one is you will seek out Hashem your God. You'll find him if you search with all your heart, with all your soul. That's verse 29. Verse 30, when you're in distress and all these terrible things happen to you, you will return to Hashem your God and hearken to his voice. And the Orchaim tells us that there's two different levels of repentance. There's repentance that is internal awakening. That's verse 29, where we understand, we recognize God despite not being compelled externally. And verse 30 is when all these terrible things befall us, then we're going to, in response to this external circumstance, we're going to reach out and... Uh, awaken and reconnect to God. And that's another central concept in, in Jewish theodicy, the idea that pain and suffering is God's way of getting our attention and causing us to repent. And we see, again, two kinds of repentance. One, where we just awaken ourselves. We're not suffering necessarily, but we, we come to grips with the idea that we're supposed to be living for a certain higher purpose and we connect to God. And then there's a second way where things are so bad and we ask, why, 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 why does God allow this to happen? And we examine our ways and then we return to God. I would surmise that it's much more difficult for us to connect to God, to repent to God, to return back to God when things are going well for us. And I would argue that maybe modern society today, we struggle with repentance because we have so much abundance, so much stability, so much assumed peace that therefore things are good. Why would we need to try to examine our ways? Uh, but here we see that 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 we're going to return to God. And if it's not in the first way, it's not in verse 29 way. If it's not out of plenty, uh, if it's not based upon an internal awakening, then sadly God's going to dial up the suffering and, and, and the pain to impel us to repent. And we're given a consolation in verse uh, 31 that uh, Hashem, your God, is a merciful God. He's not going to abandon us, not going to destroy us. Even if things get really terrible, really bad for us, he'll still be there with us. He'll still not forget the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he swore to us. And then in verse 32, it begins a very powerful argument, a very powerful proof to the divinity of Torah. Moses makes a challenge, a challenge to, to the nations uh, not only the nations that exist now, the nations then, it's a challenge even to us as we read it. Inquire. I'll read it uh, uh, verbatim. Inquire now regarding the early days that preceded you from the day where God created man on the earth, the earliest part of history, from one end of the heaven to the other end of the heaven, all history. Ask the following question. Has there ever been anything like this great thing or has anything like it been heard? There is a phenomenon that's so unique that Moses is challenging us to find another example of this. What is this great thing that Moses wants us to examine? Has a people ever heard the voice of God speaking to them from amidst the fire as you have heard and survived? Or has any God ever miraculously come to take a nation from amidst the nation with challenges, with signs, with wonders, with war, with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm, and with great, awesome deeds such as everything Hashem your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. You have been shown to know that God, He is the God, there is none other besides Him. An amazing challenge. Every nation, every religion has some sort of revelation that kicks off the religion. 
And here we see that our nation was ticked off by the great and miraculous plucking of one nation from amidst another nation of the Exodus and this national revelation at Sinai where a whole nation hears God and survives to tell the tale. What Moses is challenging us is find another example. Has anyone had this or has everyone, anyone even claimed to have had it? What this is telling us is that this is something which is impossible to falsify. I'm going to make up my own religion. I cannot convince the nation of billions that they experienced something they did not experience. And here we see that an event that's documented in the most significant document of all time, a law document that is observed by people and taught forward, and it's contemporary. Moses is speaking to the same people that have experienced it, and it's written down and perpetuated for generations. It's impossible to falsify, and it's a very powerful proof to the divinity of Torah and to the divinity of our religion. Every nation has some sort of claim of revelation to kickstart their religion. Ours is done in front of all, and here we see in the very book that describes it, in the book that was delivered to the people who experience it themselves, they are told, go, look, beginning of, of heaven, end of heaven, beginning of the world, end of the world, all of human history. Has there ever been such a similar claim? No. And therefore, the result of that, you know for sure that Hashem, your God, is one. There is none other besides him. Idolatry, all the other religions, they're all hoaxes. They're all not true. You know the truth. You know there's only one power you indeed are chosen. And again, continues with this theme. And verse 37, we're chosen because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's important to stress, this is not just us saying that we're better. We're, we're saying that we're chosen for a reason. We're chosen for a purpose. But therefore, the stakes are so high. We have to complete the Abrahamic mission. Because he loved your forefathers and, chose, and he chose their offspring after him, he took us out and he gave us this responsibility. He gave us also these, these opportunities to go conquer the land, but to not fall into the traps of idolatry. And again, this is one of the major themes of, of Jewish philosophy, the idea that we're chosen, but we're chosen for a reason because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're chosen for a purpose to complete what they began. And that, of course, raises the stakes where God's emissaries in the world, and therefore there are, of course, benefits from that. But uh, on the flip side, there are also responsibilities that come with very grave consequences of abrogating those responsibilities. And then verse 41, we read about the separation of the cities of refuge on the Transjordan. We spoke about this a few weeks ago, the idea that when someone kills accidentally, they are not executed, but they have to relocate and they have to move to one of the cities of refuge. And there's three of them on the east bank of the Jordan and there's three of them on the west bank of the Jordan. And here we see that Moses, he is going to designate those three cities on the east bank of the Jordan, even though they're not activated until the other three on the other side are designated. And it's interesting, you know, the juxtaposition of these verses doesn't seem to really fit into this story. Well, you know, why is Moses in the middle of this whole discussion talking about how important it is to, to enter the land and to not do idolatry and to behave in the proper way and to do good? Why is that connected to, this, to the verses that follow of Moses designating the cities of refuge on the east bank of the Jordan? So the very powerful idea we find in the Kliyakar tells us that the very last verse of the previous section, verse 40, it reads as follows, you shall observe his decrees and his commandments that I command you this day so that he will do good to you and to your children after you so that you will prolong your days on the land that Hashem your God gives you for all the days. He says a very powerful idea. He says when someone does a mitzvah, when someone does good, when someone obeys and observes the decrees and commandments of God, there's two results. He will do good to you and to your children. What it tells us is that a mitzvah, even when it's not done by someone completely, but it will be completed by someone else, i.e. by their children, then that's still a very powerful idea. And he gives an example of a grandfather who plants a, a tree. And of course, the tree won't bear fruit until after the grandfather has passed, but he's doing it for his children. And the idea, again, that the, that, that, that the action of the father, even though it does not actualize in his time, it could bear fruit, so to speak, for his, for his descendants. And therefore, right after Moses taught that lesson, 
that even though you don't see the fruits of your labor now, but your children will benefit from it, he himself actually does it. And therefore, he himself designates those three cities. Again, it's not actualized till later, but it's an implementation of the exact message that he just conveyed to the Jewish people. And I would say, as an aside, that's a very good pedagogical lesson. When you are preaching something, you can right away actually obey it and fulfill it. You practice what you preach, and that is a way to drill home that lesson to your charges. And there's an interesting verse here uh, when it concludes this discussion. This is the Torah that Moses placed before the children of Israel. And the Talmud tells us, a very powerful idea, that the cities of refuge, this is the Torah. It's the, it's the equivalent, just like someone who is uh, it kills accidentally. They are in danger of their life. They could be stricken down by the blood relative of the person that they killed, but they go to their city of refuge and they're given life. So too, Torah is almost like a city of refuge for us. We're living a crazy, chaotic life, and Torah is the city of refuge. And in fact, the Talmud tells us uh, a very powerful idea that when someone is immersed in Torah, then they're totally impervious to anything else, even to the angel of death. If the angel of death wants to kill someone, but they're studying Torah, the angel of death cannot access them. And it gives us this amazing story about Rav Chist, one of the sages of the Talmudic era. He is studying in the house of scholarship, and it comes his time to pass. And the angel of death comes and tries to take away his soul, but he can't do it. And he had to create a distraction. So he goes to the back, and he sits down on a cedar tree, and the cedar tree snaps in half, and there's a commotion, and the rabbi momentarily stops studying. What's going on? And right away, he's able to grab his soul. So that's uh, chapter four. Again, a very powerful chapter. We have to run through it, but let's begin with chapter five. So the Ramban tells us that the retrospective that Moses began, the book of Deuteronomy, really ends over here. And then we're getting back to the, the, the other goal, so to speak, of the book of Deuteronomy, which is the recapitulation of the Torah. And it's going to begin with the recapitula- recapitulation of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. Now, there's various different interpretations as to exactly why the Ten Commandments are repeated. So the Ramban, he says that Moses is repeating the Ten Commandments and adding his commentary, adding his explanation. And he adds, in addition, that the first two of the Ten Commandments were given directly by God, and therefore Moses did not add any embellishments, any interpretations, any explanations to that, but he elaborates on some of the other of the commandments. There is another opinion that tells us that the first time that we read about the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, that's a reference to the first set of tablets that were eventually broken at the episode of the Golden Calf. When we're talking about over here in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, which is the second time we're told the Ten Commandments, that is the, that's what's written on the second set of tablets that were never broken. There are some substantive differences that the commentaries tell us. You look at Rashi, Rashi says, well, I already explained the Ten Commandments in Exodus, go check it out over there. But there are some differences. So for example, in the commandment to obey and observe the Shabbos, the fourth of the Ten Commandments, in the book of Exodus, it says to remember the Shabbos, whereas over here it says to observe the Shabbos. Rashi tells us, again, this is a very advanced idea, but if it's in Rashi, we can read it. Rashi says that what did God say at Sinai? Was it remember the Shabbos, Zohar, or was it to obey, to observe the Shabbos, Shamar? Says Rashi, both of them were said in the same utterance, both of them were written in the same, in the same word, and both of them were heard in the same, uh, at the same time. And again, what, what exactly does that mean? They're different words. One's Zahar, one's Shamar, one's remember, one's safeguard, one's observe. How is it possible that they are really the same thing? It's a very advanced idea, probably edging on the, on the arena of, of Kabbalah. In addition, we read in the, in the Talmud, the book of uh, Baba Kama, page 55a, in verse 16, it adds, it shall be good for you. If you obey the Shabbos, it'll be good for you. And the Talmud tells us that that word, that it'll be good for you, only appears on the second tablets that were not broken. Why? Because if it was on the first tablets, then God knew that the promise of goodness 
would be the first tablets that would be shattered and it's improper, God forbid, so to speak, that a promise, a pledge of godly goodness will ever be shattered. There is also a different word described in the last Ten Commandments, not to covet. It says not to desire. And the Ramam tells us that these are two separate commandments. One is not to desire and a second is not to take any action to extract the coveted item from the person that you desire. After the Ten Commandments are retold, we're told by uh, verse 19, these are the words that God spoke to me, and he said it, and he did not repeat it, i.e., this is the only time it happens. There's never going to be another divine revelation in front of a nation. And then it goes back to discussing some of the things that happened amidst the Ten Commandments. The Jewish people, they were blown away. Uh, the Talmud says quite literally, they were blown away 12 miles away. And they asked Moses to be the intermediary. It was almost as if they they died and were resuscitated. They couldn't bear to experience the Sinai experience, the prophecy. They weren't conditioned for it. And therefore, they asked Moses to be the intermediary. The Talmud tells us that the first two were said by God and the last eight were said by God via Moses. And Moses wasn't sure what to do with this request. They want to hear from Moses, but really, should they, they should hear from God. So is that a proper request? And Moses here tells us that Hashem heard the sound of your voice and he said, it's okay. It's okay for them to hear it via Moses. I heard the sound of the words of the people that they have spoken to you. Uh, they did well in that, in what they spoke. It's okay what they said. It's okay that for them to ask to have it given via you. And then there's a very interesting verse, verse 26. If only their hearts will remain theirs to fear me, to observe all my commandments all the days, so that will be good for them and for their children forever. A very interesting verse here that uh, all the commentaries jump on. What is this idea, this sentence that we read from God? If only, if only the people will listen, if only they'll be good, if only they'll obey the mitzvahs, if only they'll fear God, it'll be good for them. And here, the, the Ramban and the Ramam as well, they tell us that this is a verse that highlights the concept of free will. God is saying, it's up to them. If only they do it. It's almost as God wishing. God's wishing that the Jewish people do obey the Torah, but ultimately it is in their hands. And then the chapter concludes, Moses tells the nation, this is the Sinai experience, but then God said, okay, now I'm going to elaborate on what this means. And the commentaries tell us that the, the Ten Commandments really are a condensed version of all of Torah, but then God said he's going to flesh it out, the actual details, the 613 details of how to fulfill these ten principles, and those were conveyed to Moses, and thus concludes chapter 5. And chapter 6 begins with the Shema. This is the commandment, the decrees, the ordinances that Hashem your God commanded to teach me. Again, Moses now has the mandate. The Jewish nation, the whole nation experienced Sinai together with him. They know for sure that he is a legitimate prophet. And now they know that God gave him the rest or the details of the Torah. And now he's going to convey them, what, what is the Torah that God commanded me? This is the commandment and the decrees and the ordinances that Hashem your God commanded to, he, commanded to teach you to perform the land which you are crossing, to possess it, so that you will fear Hashem your God, to observe his commandments that I command you, you, your child, your grandchild, all the days of your life, so that your days will be lengthened. And it begins with the Shema. Here, O Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem is one, Hashem is the only one. Now, of course, we're going to have to run through this quickly. Uh, the Rambam tells us, for example, in Guide to the Perplexed, that this sentence, this six-word sentence, is really something we have to dwell with the ruminate upon for years, and we don't have that kind of time. But briefly, what does this mean? It means, Shema, listen, remember, don't forget where you came from, don't forget where you're going, for, going towards, what are you really living for? Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. And again, there's all kinds of commentaries. Uh, Rashi, for example, tells us that Hashem is our God, but in the future, Hashem will be one. In addition, a similar idea we find in the Midrash, Hashem is our God in this world, but in Olam Aban, in, in, the, in the afterlife, in the spiritual world, it's going to be universal, it's going to be ubiquitous. And again, that, that really highlights our mission. Our mission is to expand the concept of accepting God to previously unheld territory. We believe Hashem is God, but we have to disseminate to that to, to that to the whole world. 
And again, there's many other comments exactly how to understand what this means. If you look in the, in the Hebrew of, of this verse, you see that the last letter of the first and the final word of this verse, verse 4 of chapter 6, are enlarged. And again, there's many, lots of commentary on that. Uh, it's important to go study it. We have to continue. And then it begins with the concept of loving God. You should love Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources. We have to love God, which will be difficult on its own merit, but we're told specifically how much we have to love God with all our hearts, with both our good and bad inclinations, with all our soul, even if God takes away our soul, with all our money, with all our resources, with everything that he does to us, we have to have this incredible love of God asks the Midrash, how are we supposed to love God? We have a hard time even conceptualizing God, understanding God on a conceptual level, yet we're told that we have to love this entity. And continues the verse, and these matters I shall command you today to be upon your heart, which is the study of Torah. You should teach them to your children. You should speak to them while you sit in your home, while you walk on the way, while you retire, while you arise. Bind them as a sign upon your arm. Let them be ornaments between your eyes. This is the tefillin. Write them on your doorposts, and they should be upon your home and upon your gates. Says the Midrash, how are we supposed to love God? We're supposed to love God via Torah study. And the idea, again, quite briefly, is that the Torah is the proxy for God. We cannot interface with God directly, but we can interface with Torah. And because Torah is inseparable from God, by connecting to Torah, we connect to God's infinite wisdom. And uh, just, again, briefly, the idea of tefillin and mezuzah, very powerful ideas. These are signs. These are markers. These ideas are so important. The Shema, what we're living for, what we stand for as a nation, the idea of Torah, the idea of, of loving God, the idea that we're supposed to disseminate the, the notion of God in the world, it's essentially our mission. It's so important. We have to wrap them to our, close to our hearts and to our homes and to our heads. And again, there's many deep implications of course, when the Jewish people left Egypt, they also did something on their doorpost. God passed over them. Of course, it's not that God needs a reminder, but again, it's for us. It's to symbolize on our door, on our signage, this is our allegiance. It's, we, we, we do it to our head, to our hearts, to our homes. This is what we stand for as a nation. I want to add an idea from my brother, Rabbi Arya Walby, that the there's different opinions as to how you're supposed to affix the, the, the mezuzah on your door. Is it vertical or is it horizontal? Whereas if you look in most doors that have a mezuzah on it, you'll notice that it's a skew. It's neither opinion. This is unusual because when there is a halakha dispute, well, you could go like this, you could go like that. Yet over here we see we're making like a compromise. So my, my brother, he should live and be well, Rabbi Ari Wolby, he says that the home is a place for compromise. And therefore, when you have a mezuzah, we do not like this, not like that. We do halfway. And, and every time you walk into your home, you're supposed to think about this concept that in a home, we have to give a little bit. We have to yield a little bit. We have to compromise. Now, I just pointed out that in the very first paragraph of the Shema, that contains the Ten Commandments and thus is a microcosm of all of Torah and all of faith. Of course, there's tons of commentary and analysis, and we have to continue. Uh, Verse 10 talks about we're going to get to the land, we're going to have all kinds of abundance and goodness. We may, as a result of that, we may rebel against God, we may forget God, but we're encouraged not to, we have to fear God. And the Rabban adds that here it talks about fear God, right after it talks about loving God. These are the two emotions of a relationship that we have with God. I want to add that the concept of fear of God is a little bit unusual or a little bit unnatural for us in, in modern times. And the Ramchal, Rav Moshe already in the 18th century, he writes that what it means to have fear of God, that means to have a seriousness with a relationship. You know, every relationship is uh, responsibilities mixed with emotions, with affection. Just like, you know, a marriage is, is about love, of course, but it's also about responsibilities. It's also about uh, a certain a certain seriousness in that relationship. And those two together, that's the ideal relationship. Love and fear, love and seriousness, both in relationships with other people and with our relationship to the Almighty. And then, of course, it warns us, and this is something we see again and again in the book of Deuteronomy, if we devolve into idolatry, God will destroy us. We should not test God. He is a vengeful God. If we do idolatry, he will destroy us. And the Talmud tells us that there is one exception. There's one area that we're allowed to test God, and that is with charity. If we have charity, God promises he will make us rich. And that's one area that you are indeed allowed to test God. 
And then another very powerful verse in verse 18, we should do what's right, what's fair, what's just, what's good in the eyes of Hashem, our God. Says Rashi, what does that mean? It means to do compromise. If you have two people uh, who are litigants coming to court, one says you owe me $100, one says you don't owe me, I don't owe you nothing, the judge is coached, is urged to try to find a compromise. Maybe they can agree on 50 and everyone could be happy. There's a very seminal Ramban to explain this idea. The Ramban tells us that there's many mitzvahs that we have about how to behave, you know, not to speak gossip and not to take revenge and not to uh, stand idly on our brother's blood, to not curse the, the, the deaf and not to put a stumbling block before the blind, to stand up in front of uh, when an old person walks in the room. Those are all details. And here we see this verse tells us the generality. We should do what's right, what's proper, what's good, what is just in the eyes of God. Don't say, oh, you know what? I found a loophole. I can act in a corrupt way. And it's not technically against the rules of the Torah. It is against this rule to do what's proper, what is just in the eyes of God. And then chapter 7 talks about how we're supposed to behave once we enter. We're told that we have to destroy the idols of the local inhabitants, the Canaanites, we have, we're not allowed to give them plaudits. We're not allowed to, we're not allowed to allow them to dwell in the land. There is the prohibition against intermarriage. We're not allowed to marry our children to them. And the concept of matrilineal descent is actually found in this, in this verse, in verse three and verse four of, of chapter seven of Deuteronomy. I want to add, maybe it's a slight misnomer, when we talk about matrilineal descent, i.e. if your mother is Jewish, you are Jewish, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, what this means is that the Torah recognizes certain unions and does not recognize other unions. And therefore, if you have a union of husband and wife, the Torah recognizes it, well, then it, we follow the parents. Both parents are Jewish, child's Jewish. If the father is a Kohen, the child's a Kohen. We follow the father, essentially. Whereas when there is a union that the Torah does not recognize because it's an intermarriage, then we don't know how the woman became pregnant. The, the father, the husband is dissociated because in the Torah's lenses doesn't exist. This is not a union that it recognizes. And therefore, all you have is the mother. And if the mother is Jewish, the child is Jewish. If the mother is not Jewish, the child is not Jewish. And thus, it's not about necessarily matrilineal descent. It's about patrilineal dissociation in the event of a union that the Torah does not sanction, does not recognize. And again, a lot of the themes that we've seen previously are revisited. We have to destroy the idols of the nations in, that we are that we are conquering. We read the verse uh, that tells us about us being a chosen nation. For you are a holy people to Hashem your God. Hashem your God has chosen you to be for him a treasured people above all the peoples that are on the face of the earth, not because you are more numerous than the other peoples that Hashem desire us, that Hashem choose us, but quite the contrary, because we are the fewest of the people. And therefore, that would not be a reason for us to be desiresome. If we're so small, if we're so few, then why would God choose us because of us being numerous when we're in fact not numerous? Rather, because of Hashem's love for you and because of he, he observes the oath that he swore to your forefathers, that's why he took us out of the land of Egypt and that's why we are his people. He is our God. We are his nation. Again, the idea of us being chosen and that all stems back from the legacy of Abraham. Abraham began this connection that we have with God and therefore, we're his descendants. There is a bond. There is an oath. There is a sign. There is a covenant that Abraham has with God, and we're part of that covenant. And it's not because we're, we're, we're great, because we're big. And in fact, Rashi tells us what that means is it's not because we are haughty. When we are haughty, in fact, God ceases to desire us. Rather, when we are small, we're like Abraham, who says, I am nothing but dust and ashes. We're like Moses and Aaron that say, we are nothing. Who are we when we humble ourselves, that indeed is the characteristic that we have that makes us desirable in the eyes of God. Interestingly, the Ramban here, he invokes a theme that he mentions many times. What does it mean that God chose us? We're to him a, ch a cherished, a precious nation, says the Ramban. Again, this is a, like, a, like a very deep idea, Kabbalistic that there is no intermediary between our nation and God. Whereas every other nation has like an angelic force through which godly vitality is filtered, that does not apply for us. We have no cosmological intermediary. God chose us, us directly, and therefore we are connected to him 
And that, of course, has good things and has bad things. It means we have a much shorter leash, but we have much grander opportunity. The stakes are higher. And it ends with a very stringent uh, warning. You must know, verse 9, that Hashem, your God, he is a God, the faithful God, who safeguards the covenant and the kindness for those who love him and for those who observe his commandments for a thousand generations. Rashi tells us that when we love God, it's 2,000 generations. When we fear God, it's only 1,000 generations. Regardless, we're still good if we obey the will of God. So if, if we do obey the will of God, then he's going to give us kindness and safeguard the covenant for a thousand or two thousand generations. And he repays his enemies in his lifetime to make him perish. What does that mean? It means the wicked get rewarded here. He repays the wicked, his enemies, in his lifetime, in the, in the enemy's lifetime, i.e., if someone is a sinner, is a wicked person, and they do mitzvos, then their reward is going to be in their lifetime. So that way, when they arrive at the spiritual world at Omaba, they could be punished fully. However, for the righteous, he sh- you shall observe the commandment and the decrees and the ordinances that I command you today to perform them, says Rashi. What does it mean? I command you th- them today. Today you do it, and tomorrow you get the reward. Again, that same idea that we saw at the beginning of the Parsha, that this world is the world of action. The world of Olam is the world of reward. Just like Moses did not want to utilize, to expend, to exhaust any of his reward for his spiritual deeds in this world, this world is for doing, and that should be saved for the next world. It's a marathon, this parsha. Of course, we had to run through a lot of the ideas that maybe warranted a lot more rumination and thinking. But again, we have this parsha. We have to try to finish it within an hour. And I hope it was valuable. Please email me, rabbiwolbe.gmail.com. I look forward to speaking to you next week.